Welcome to the podcast on Sources of the Reign of Robert I and the Anglo-Scottish Wars of Independence, a podcast produced by the Arts and Humanities Research Council-funded project, The Community of the Realm in Scotland, 1249-1424, History, Law and Charters in a Recreated Kingdom. The project team is made up of historians from the Universities of Edinburgh, Glasgow and King's College London, and is recorded in the King's Online Studio at King's College London. Each week we take one of the important sources from or around the reign of Robert Bruce, King of Scots from 1306 to 1329, and explain what it is, how it survives, and why it matters. I'm Alice Taylor, Reader in Medieval History at King's College London, and this week Dorvit Brun, Professor of Scottish History at the University of Glasgow, will be taking us through the Scoyan Chronicle. So, Davy, the Scoyan Chronicle. What is this source? Uh, thank you. Yeah, so this is uh, this is very exciting because it's one of these rare things, which is a source that nobody knew about or suspected existed, which then turned up out of the blue. And it turned up uh, in 1990 when bookseller in Bangor, County Down, was selling his stock. And uh, this renowned private collector of ancient and medieval manuscripts, Martin Skoyen, from just outside of Oslo in Norway, uh, he bought it. Uh, and so, uh, so that's really exciting in itself, that there's, there's something completely new. But why is it so exciting? Well, I should begin, before getting to the real bits and pieces of particular interest, just explain a little bit uh, about what it looks like. Mm, so how does it survive? It was created as manuscripts in the early 16th century, and it went through various owners in Edinburgh, and then disappeared from view until it turned up in 1990. So, for example, if you want to go and look at it, you you have to obviously go to Martin Scullion's private uh, collection. And when you ask for it, what you get is a volume uh, that's about the size of an iPad, and it's in its original binding of the early 16th century, probably in Edinburgh, and um, there is a thing of particular interest before we talk about the text, and that is that most of it is a copy of John Mayer's history of Scotland and uh, England, his work of British history, published in Paris in 1521, but there is a very curious bit at the beginning. It's about, about 38 leaves and there's a stub of one that's lost at the beginning and this is by a different scribe and it's on paper which is about a decade or two older Mm. than the paper in the rest of the manuscript and so this initial bit is the bit that we're really interested in and a question that we can't answer but should bear in mind is what is it physically before it became part of this much bigger volume bigger in terms of numbers of, of leaves and pages what was it? So that's very difficult to, to know, and it's it's about three gatherings, and you, you, you suspect that it represents a kind of low-grade form of sharing historical information that wouldn't have been in a bound volume and would have been quite perishable, not the sort of thing people would put in a library. So maybe it is giving us access to a way of engaging with Scottish history in Latin, in its more sort of flexible and informal state. So the book is basically it's divided into two parts, what now survives, the, the, 
the chronicle of John Mayer, John Mayer's history, and this earlier bit, these 38 folios. And it's the 38 folios that are particularly exciting for this period of Ex- Scottish history. Exactly, exactly. So, and uh, I'm sorry to delay the, the sort of exciting <laughs> bits uh, about all this, uh, but it's important just to build up through understanding what we are really dealing with, which is therefore this rather flimsy paper manuscript written shortly after 1510, thereabouts, probably in Edinburgh. And so when you look at it, it's um, a collection of different texts, all relating to Scottish history. So uh, at the beginning, it's got an account of Scottish and British origins. It then moves to give a complete view of Scottish history in pretty quick form from the earliest kings and indeed origins of the Scots back in Greece and coming through Egypt and Spain and eventually Ireland and ultimately Scotland, king lists um, and and then uh, an, an account of um, Margaret and Malcolm III's ancestors and descendants um, and then that leads through to a year-by-year chronicle, which I'll say a bit more about. Then there's some more material. There's another summary chronicle. Then there's an extract from uh, a thing called Gestrinalia. And it's, it's, it's a bit of a hodgepodge. It's absolutely fascinating in that regard. This sort of reinforces the sense of it being a bit informal, not necessarily the sort of thing that anybody would have had in a library as such. So, so that's, that's the overview When we look at it in more detail, there are things of interest in the early material about Scottish origins, king lists and all the rest of it, but that's probably more of a connoisseur's interest Mm. because it's things like, you know, you've got clear evidence of this being an earlier version of Scottish origins, legends and king lists and all the rest of it than we can see in other other manuscripts. Mm. Uh, So, but those are sort of tiny details. But what is particularly interesting is this year-by-year chronicle, which has been used to continue the story, if you like, from 1285 through to when it stops in 1327. And as I say, this is a year-by-year chronicle, which means it's not a story, it's not a narrative, it's just telling you, year 1285, this happened, that happened, something else happened, and get on to the next year, and so on. So it's it's very, just in its nature, it's pretty bitty and piecey, mm. but it's got a lot of information much of which has been known before but not all so what what you're basically saying is that these these folios actually contain so much material for understanding how people interacted with the past and what they knew about the past and that even within those folios there's this chronicle which basically covers um, Scottish history from almost just before the death of Alexander III to just before the death of Robert I and in that chronicle it contains a lot of stuff that we knew already, but some stuff that we didn't. Exactly. So what does it say? What does it say? The things that um, leap out uh, to begin with are um, two things. One is that uh, with William Wallace, we've known that he killed the Sheriff of Lanark sometime in May 1297. And here we are told that uh, he not only did the deed um, but we're given the exact date 3rd of May and uh, also I'll just read it out because uh, it's got another little bit of information so it says in the year of our Lord 1297 the Scots rose up namely William Wallace and Richard of Lundy who had gathered together a band of men 
and they killed the sheriff of Lanark on the day of the finding of the Holy Cross. So that's 3rd of May. So this is the first time that we're given the exact day when the deed happened, and that reassures us hugely that we are dealing with good quality information if you're interested in just recovering what happened. Um, and therefore, the fact that this character called Richard of Lundy leaps out uh, as being interesting. So it's not William Wallace on his own, but Richard of Lundy. And we might want to talk about the significance of that later. But here we have new information. Uh, the other piece of new information, which is quite striking, takes us back to the death of Alexander III and the parliament that was held immediately afterwards to appoint guardians to run the kingdom until it was, uh, well, at, at that stage, until Margaret, the granddaughter of Alexander III and only heir of his body, had uh, come to Scotland from Norway, etc. Uh, so, so in this moment of crisis, of lack of leadership, to have this uh, committee of guardians. And up to now, the material we have to hand has suggested that six guardians were appointed. Here we are told there are seven. Hmm. And you may think, oh, well, why should we take that seriously rather than six? Um, and the main reason is that it actually gives uh, what looks like an accurate date for the Parliament, 28th of April, which allows 40 days after the death of Alexander III. The previous account that we've depended on from Gesserelia has uh, said it was earlier in April. So there are, there are problems about the Gesserelia account anyway. But the main thing is, is that this seventh guardian is the Bishop of Bishop of Dunkeld, William Bishop of Dunkeld. So it's so it names the guardians, and uh, we'll just go through it uh, briefly. In the year of grace, twelve eighty six, on the fifteenth day after Easter, twenty eighth April, a Parliament was held at Schoon, where great men and lesser came together. There's a little bit of a gap, and then it says, of it, seven guardians were appointed, namely the bishops of St Andrews, Glasgow, Dunkeld. Duncan Earl of Fife, Alexander Earl of Buchan, John Common, and James Stewart of Scotland. Alexander Earl of Buchan, very famous person at the time. In the other account that everybody's depended on up to now, uh, the name's wrong. It's John. <laughs> so there's a who, who was the son of Alexander Earl of Buchan. So, but the but the really interesting thing, as I say, is there we have the Bishop of Dunkeld, who was William at the time, and uh, and it. He could very well have been alive at that point, and he could very well have been dead by the next time we ever have any information about the Guardians, which is when they issue a document in their name in September, and he's not there. Mm. So that's sort of corroborated this idea that there were six. So having seven Guardians, you may think, oh, well, what does that matter? There's an extra Guardian. But it does allow a way of thinking about how the Scottish elite, the community, at Parliament were thinking about how to manage the country in this dreadful situation of not having a king um, and that they were thinking of this odd number as, a, as something that would be a little more likely to produce coherent government um, in a consensual way because uh, if necessary they could vote and it does uh, tie in even closer to uh, the idea of running the country by committee which is what some of these individuals would have remembered from the period of Simon de Montfort's rule uh, in England in the late uh, 1250s, early 12, 1260s. Is there also something about the number seven that's particularly powerful within a Scottish context as well? I'm just thinking about 
you know, the appeal of the seven earls, which is a kind of odd document anyway, but the idea that Scotland is somehow historically and anciently divided into seven regions or was once seven kingdoms and has become one. So just slightly fancifully, do you think there's a, there's a more kind of symbolic element to the number seven as well as the fact that you know it's an odd number and that's helpful when you're trying to make decisions. Well, I think that's a very good point. Uh, so it could be, if you like, a round number. It's not, it doesn't mm. seem like a round number to us, but a sort mm. of significant number. It feels complete. I mean, another interesting part of this is that whenever a, a guardian died, uh, he was not replaced. So this was a one-off, this appointment of guardians. Uh, and by the time... The government of the Guardians comes to an end in June 1291 when they transfer executive power to Edward I. There are only four. Mm. So let's go back to the significance of this, in some way, the significance of the Scoyan Chronicle and the new information that it contains. So you alluded to it before, you know, what does it matter that we now can imagine the idea that William Wallace isn't acting alone? or rather isn't the lone leader in his killing of the Sheriff of Lanark. Exactly. If I could just take a sort of step back and uh, reflect more widely on this experience of coming across totally unexpected new information, um, it does remind us something that we so easily forget uh, is that our information is so incomplete. There's always the hope that you get new bits of information, but all we can do is work with what we've got and uh, and we should always remember how, to some extent, it's it's a bit of a random collection of bits of information, and there's so much that we just don't know and will never know. So, bearing all that in mind, this is interesting that William Wallace was accompanied by somebody else, um, who was actually a knight, uh, which he wasn't at that stage, and it does mean that there's a pattern established. To go back to general reflections, I mean, looking for patterns is something that we find naturally attractive to do as we're trying to make sense of what is going on, despite the limitations of our information. And the pattern is that now, each time there is a big event in the uprising of 1297, William Wallace is always there, but he's always there as co-leader with somebody else. In fact, he's the junior partner, famously at the Battle of Starting Bridge with Andrew Murray, but also uh, previously, in, uh, between these two events, Stirling Bridge and the killing of the Sheriff of Lanark, close shave that the English just, just this year had, uh, Ormsby, uh, of escaping at Schoon from their clutches. And that was the clutches of William Wallace and uh, William Douglas. So, uh, so that, that is a pattern that emerges, that he's always co-leader and actually always the junior partner, uh, we would assume, because his other co-leader in each case is occasion is a knight, a social superior. So this means that when William Wallace ends up as sole guardian after the victory at Stirling Bridge, which you wonder if it came as as much surprise to him and everybody else that it was quite so so spectacular and that therefore English government um, in Scotland came to an end for much of the country, not of course all of it, they therefore had to find a way of governing, governing the, the kingdom, and that he ended up as sole guardian, not out of any plan, but rather because we'd run out of partners, as it were. This, uh, I mean, okay, they could have 
discovered another partner for him uh, and so on but he but he was the, he was the last leader standing if you like at that critical moment uh, the last leader who was available who wasn't in english captivity so it does gives a different slant on a, diff- a deeper understanding of the figure of william wallace and why he ended up in this extremely unusual position of being the sole guardian given it particularly his you know that he belonged to a, a group who were followers of leaders, not leaders themselves. Is it possible to get hold of the Scoyan Chronicle as it now stands? Well, yeah, so it depends what you mean uh, to get hold of. Of course, if you want to actually have it in your hands, uh, you have to ask permission from the owner and travel to see it. Um, they, I should say that uh, Martin Scoyan himself and his librarian are always very helpful and you, you can see a digital image of one of the pages from the Chronicle itself, from this analytic uh, Chronicle on their website, their catalogue uh, website. But if you mean sort of get hold of, that is just to be able to read, mm. um, read the thing, um, then I'm afraid uh, you, you have to wait for me to um, finish uh, transcribing it and editing it and translating it. And although much of the essential work has, done, has been done, it's not enough simply to transcribe and translate the text. You, you want to contextualise it. And so part of that task, of course, is to explain how it relates to what we know about other events, uh, the same events from other sources, but also how this source relates to others, because there are verbal similarities from this, with, between this and other chronicle material from Scotland relating to this period. And that is really interesting, and I've not quite finished working that out. Thank you very much, Jay. If you'd like this podcast, please do rate and review it either on Podbean, our host, or on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow the project on Twitter, which is at COTR2020. That's at COTR2020. And you can visit our website online at www.cotr.ac.uk.